Hey everybody, this is Two Dads Named Grant, episode number nine. I am Grant Vickery. Right, and since he's Grant Vickery, there's at least an 87% chance the other person in this podcast is Grant Overman. You know, it's funny you should mention that because we're going to be talking about some percentages today. Um, Talking about correlation, causation, studies, how to read that kind of information. And I promise it won't be as boring as it sounds. It might be close, but it It, won't be exactly as boring as it sounds. Yeah. The more interesting way to describe it is how to know exactly how you're setting up your child to be a criminal or grow an extra limb or lose a limb, maybe. Or why if you already have a child who's one of those things, it's 100% your fault. Yes. Yeah. Everything (laughs) that you did was wrong. You didn't buy the right kind of socks when they were little. And so... I hated the socks I had when I was little, and look at me. It's just terrible. <laughs> your ch- your child could turn into me. You know, they be might warned. be an English major. <laughs> would be the worst. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like the things, you know, the things that touched your toe, like the seams? Man, I hated yeah, those. If, who, yeah. They make seamless socks now, actually. I think you have to pay through the nose for them, which seems dubious at best. Eh, well, yeah. No, also, those, those seams were terrible. Also, the tags <laughs> in the back of my shirt, I had my, my parents would cut it out. Then I would make it sh- make them show it to me because I didn't trust them. But they would, I thought they would <laughs> trick me and just like hold the scissors back there and make the clipping sound because you know, that, I don't there's know. a lot to unpack there. Uh, thank <laughs> God Michael Jordan. Child. Thank God Michael Jordan solved that problem for us by forcing the yeah, people I at Haynes to get rid of tags. I know. That's why Colin Kaepernick can never make me not buy Nikes, even though I'm a Republican. Because <laughs> to me, Nike always means Michael Jordan. <laughs> I'm wearing Jordans right now, actually. No, I'm just kidding. It's raining. I would never put on my Jordans when it's raining. Yeah, you're not an so, animal, so that's good. <laughs> right? <laughs> be, oof. So, anyway, so, really, yeah, what are we actually talking about? Besides, I mean, percentages, right? But <laughs> <laughs> So what we're actually talking about is how we kind of live in this really information dense world and sorting through all of that information is really hard, especially when so much of it is designed specifically to fool you essentially. Right. Um, And even the stuff that's not designed to fool you stuff that's meant in earnest, that seems like it makes sense may not actually follow the scientific method. And you know, there's all sorts of dubious journalism out there and things like that. And so um, what we're talking about today is something that, you and I both, I think, have a reasonable degree of expertise in to be able to talk about on an introductory level. I think yeah. that's fair. Which is, how do you look at all this information and sort through it and try to determine, like, what actually should I be doing for my child? What is the important thing? You know, yeah. is, is this something that this headline, do I need to pay attention to it or not? You know, if I sneeze on my baby, should I <laughs> dunk them in a pool of well water first or should you sneeze on your baby on purpose in order to build their immune system i don't right yes yes should you pour (laughs) cow bile inside of your baby's mouth directly you know and there's all should gwyneth paltrow be your general practitioner yeah um or your pediatrician yeah yeah no i definitely feel that i think a lot of parents feel that when i mean you want to do what's right and best for your child and there's so much information out there that you get just from random people you know in real life and that's hard enough i mean even maybe just your parents and your spouse's parents are enough (laughs) conflicting information to drive you crazy but then if you ever go on the internet at all or ever have you know god help you google something that's going on with your child (laughs) then then you're maybe in for a lot of existential dread about your ability to cause anything good to happen for your child so we do yeah kind of want to talk through how to kind of go about that and maybe a more productive way and maybe just a little bit about how we specifically kind of just approach that. Not necessarily as advice, but maybe, Hey, anyone listening, you're not alone in your, in your distress. Yeah. Here's a way of doing this too, right? Like this is how we do it. And this is why we do it this way. And if you agree, you can do it that way. And I think we should mention as a disclaimer, neither Grant nor I are medical doctors. Obviously, most doctors are a part of a secret cabal, and they're trying to poison your children. So you can trust us more than them. Um, <laughs> oh, wait true. a minute. That's the opposite of no, the point of this episode, yeah, isn't it? exactly. Yes. No, no. They take something called the Hippocratic Oath or something <laughs> like that. Anyway, well, I, I thought when, when we first... Uh, I think you pitched the idea for this episode and we both thought this was uh, a good idea to talk about. And the first thing that came to my mind was the kind of Jenny McCarthy anti-vax movement. Yeah. Um, and that's Misinformation been, run amok, right? Yeah, it really has been. And so there's a, a tendency I, to 
mock people who are against vaccines, right? Say like they're anti-science and stupid. And um, I don't think that's particularly helpful, specifically because I'm a Republican who works in academia. And so I know what it's like for people to assume that the reason you believe what you believe is because you're dumb or bad, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I looked into the history of the anti-vax movement, and it's not really fair to call it the anti-vax movement. It's which anti-vax movement you're talking about. So, okay, I, I intentionally didn't tell you about this because it's so gross. Are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Edward Jenner, no relation, um, <laughs> in, in the 1800s, came up with a, an initial smallpox vaccination, okay? And the way this vaccination worked was you had to score a child's arm, and then you had to take a lanced blister from cowpox, a cowpox blister, and insert it inside the child's arm. Oh. Now, do you know what cowpox is? I mean, it doesn't sound good. I'm right. So Bovine so diseases in general, I might, try to stay away from. Well, okay, you're correct that it's a bovine disease. I had to look it up because I assumed it was some cousin of chickenpox. And yeah. people get chickenpox, sure. right? Yeah. So I assume there's like a chickenpox, a cowpox, a raccoonpox, all <laughs> yeah. sorts of poxes, you know, um, somehow <laughs> related to Mercutio in some, you know, general way. Right. But cowpox is actually a pox for cows that infects the cow's udders and causes these really gross-looking sores to appear on the udders. And somehow, Edward Jenner got into his idea, I bet if I shove one of those in a child, it will protect them from smallpox, <laughs> which works, but is also violently disgusting. Sure. Like, was, I was, was he some kind of scientist or something? Or was he just like a <laughs> farmer with a dream? No, he, he, <laughs> was a, he was a, originally he was a farmer with a dream to spread cowpox everywhere because he found <laughs> it aesthetically pleasing. But after it worked, they called him a scientist. No, he was, yeah, he was a scientist. He was a medical doctor. Okay. Okay. Um, so the, the movement, the push against this was that basically it's disgusting and, <laughs> and we don't, there's no way you're shoving a cowpox boil into my child, you monster, right? You want to, the doctor wants to cut my, like, this sounds like some ancient medieval stuff. Right. Like he sounds double, like a double nut job. boil in trouble. Yeah. Especially you know? if there are no other vaccines running around, you know, right. this is not an established concept at this point. Right. I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's not. If, if you're, this is the time period when people would say things like, you know, all diseases smell, it's the miasma that's causing this <laughs> E. coli outbreak or something, right? Not this poop water that we're drinking. Um, not a hygienic time. So, uh, in 1853, there was a vaccination act that made vaccines mandatory. And you would imagine what would happen next is there is an anti-vaccination league that sure. forms and a pro-vaccination league, right? And the anti-vaccination league, their claim was essentially bodily autonomy, that you cannot force me to undergo a medical procedure or my child to undergo a medical procedure, particularly one that's painful and so blatantly disgusting. And I'm sympathetic to that position, right? Well, yeah, um, having someone tell you what to do with your body is a different issue than whether or not vaccines are beneficial, right? Uh, I see them, well, yes, but I do see them as related, right? And and it's it's a question of beneficial versus mandatory, and I think that's an right. important yeah. break here, right? Because it's it's your decision. If you want to, like, if you want to ride a motorcycle, you can. You you know, they call them donor cycles for a reason, you know? <laughs> like, it's a, it's a dangerous decision, but... You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to put yourself at risk, you know, and if you want to put your child on the back of your motorcycle again at risk, but not illegal, you know, you have the autonomy to do that. Um, now, with vaccines, it's different because it affects herd sure. immunity, which we can talk about in a little bit. But uh, the rest of the, the vaccine sort of history, in, and I'll do this faster because that's the most interesting part. 1970, Gordon Stewart in the United States says DTP. Uh, which is one of the vaccines causes neurological disorders. There's no evidence for this ever that comes out. <laughs> he just says it and people believe it for a long time. In 1998, Andrew Wakefield says that MMR, that that vaccine causes autism. And there is evidence for this because he published an academic, or he published a paper in an academic journal that is pretty well renowned. Right. Right. And it wasn't until six years later. So you've got a six year period from 1998 to 2004 where this is just kind of floating out there. It's one of the voices about this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and six years later, it's revealed that a law group paid him to falsify his data and publish his paper. 
so that they would have grounds to sue people on behalf of their clients. Wow. Um, So obviously he loses his uh, license to practice in Britain since he falsified the data. Um, And the concern that he raised and the others raised was between thimerosal, um, which is, it's a mercury containing preservative and autism, Mm. but there's no evidence one way or or the other that thimerosal is related at all to autism at all. And then uh, Jenny McCarthy starts this group um, or is involved with this group talking about curing autism, Taka, um, which, you know, if autism started with an O, it'd be a more exciting group. Um, But, uh, and that's kind of where we get the contemporary, I would say, holistic medicine approach, um, which holistic medicine is kind of an oxymoron, right? It's not really medicine, but that's kind of the history of, and that's how we got where we are. Now there are some people who oppose vaccines for religious reasons. Some children can't get vaccines for allergy reasons, right? Yes. But that's kind of that history. So it hasn't always been, I think, as out there as it seems like it is now. But even now, there's a lot of social pressure and this huge social movement that you can but can get caught up in that kind of gets you to that point, if that makes any sense. Right, and and I think. When we think of the modern anti-vax movement, right, we think of blog posts that are just referencing other blog posts or other stories of a friend of a friend that this happened or spreading of misinformation. And then when you counter and say, yeah, you know, uh, Wakefield, was that his name? Right? Yes. Yeah, Wakefield, he falsified all that. He lost his life. He clearly lied. Like, people got in trouble for it. Then it's, well, no, what about all of this stuff? And it all comes back to that root cause. But... I think it's kind of concerning that, you know, this was published in a peer review journal, right? And people read it and took it seriously because that's the system that's supposed to set up to tell us whether things are serious or not. So that's kind of a whole other can of worms to me, whether or not it is official people are lying to you. Not that it's not possible. You shouldn't be on the lookout for it necessarily, but there's kind of not much you can do about it unless you are a chemist or you know biologist or whatever and can try to replicate this person's data and if you are someone who can do that please do continue to replicate (laughs) the work of others right right, to make sure that within the academic community replication is not something that gets you promoted right you don't you don't get tenure because you replicate a bunch of studies right but Um, for regular people it's like if you if you read a study then that's just a study right like well it was done and the studies must be good so i guess that means it's true which part of what we're talking about is not always does that mean it's right. true in the way that right. it is reported to be? And um, so I, I, I do think that that's a good kind of jumping off point to talk about. Just w- when they say we've done a study, like what does that mean? Um, right. We all learned about the scientific method in like elementary or junior high school. Um, sure, but that doesn't give you – that doesn't really gloss studies really quickly. Can I right. ask you a question about studies specifically? Because I think you're yeah. probably more qualified to answer this than I am. Uh, I'm doing a study right now, but everyone's told me it's a bad study. So um, <laughs> we can talk about that as an example later. But I'm curious – so when you're setting up a, a study, if you would just sort of gloss this for both me and for anyone who's listening, right. what are kind of the rules for setting up a scientific study – like this because you you've looked at some of these in your psychology degree right sure and it depends on what you're studying my expertise or my background is a little bit more in social science which is a little more nebulous it's it's especially because you're not studying direct phenomena right and the data collection and we can talk about all that right like if you ask people tell me how you feel about this who knows what they're going to say right as opposed to self self self-reporting is is notoriously as opposed to if you're doing a study on vaccines right you could look at someone's brain in an mri or look at their cells or something like that and so really the basic idea right is that you come up with some sort of hypothesis that you're trying to test which is i want to see if you know if I throw this in the air, will it fall down or how fast will it fall down? Or if, you know, I feed a cow or a rat, that's a rat. That's we study rats all the time. If I feed a rat, nothing but lucky charms for three weeks, I hypothesize the, it will be grossly overweight and have all these health problems. Right. Or it could be luckier than other rats. Exactly. That might be your hypothesis. You failed to consider that. Right. And so, so you have this kind of, educated guess you're making about a phenomenon, right? And then you you try to set right. up a controlled scenario where you can see whether that's true. And you do that in a couple different ways. One, you ha- what you're looking for has to be measurable, right? So something like yes. luck is terrible, right? You might define 
luck a certain way and that's fine but everyone else might not and it's also not a really easily definable thing but something like weight gain over time right we can measure that um, right that's a set of numbers you can boil it down to numbers and then you look at those numbers on a chart right or if we're doing let's say we're gonna we're, since we're talking about parenting kids you know if we want to see how many kids over the span of 10 years are diagnosed with something like adhd right or sure score a certain amount on this reading test like and so you have to have a measurable piece of data and then you just basically try to isolate the one variable you're measuring and we call that controlling for other variables and you do that several different ways and I won't go into super detail but basically you want to study enough people you want to make sure that it's random so that all the other factors that might influence an outcome for instance if we're saying you know our lucky charm is going to make you fat we're going to control for rats that are like how fat did they start out and were their parents fat maybe or something like that right. and are they moving around more yes than other how rats? much exercise how are they cage? getting yeah we try yeah. to control all those things and there's a lot of different ways that people do that and so then right is there an attractive lady rat somewhere around that they're like yeah. you know worried about being fit yeah all kinds of stuff like that and so as much as you possibly can you control those other factors and then you observe, right? You introduce your variable and you observe. A lot of times what happens is you have what's called a control group. We have a group that is similar in composition to the phenomenon, the ones that you're going to test your hypothesis on, but you don't right. do anything to them to make sure that it's not just, you know, hey, did this right. happen to these people? Nothing, and it just happens to be random or some other variable I haven't considered. Um, yeah. So you, it, the reason it's so hard is because all of those things are, if you just think about it for even a tiny amount of time, like the amount of things you have to consider and control for to isolate one thing are so hard. And a lot of ways, times it's impossible, right? Um, yes, there's always confounding factors yeah. tend to introduce themselves in surprising ways. I think, right? especially if you're talking about behavior and human development, yeah. which is a lot of stuff that I think parents, between that and nutrition, I think those are the two big things that parents see the most about their children, right? And even that, yes, there's so much that goes into those. You can never really control for one thing. So that makes it hard. But but, but essentially, that's what these people are trying to do. And so when someone says that right. we conducted a study, if it's a good study, it means that their peers, other scientists or psychiatrists or psychologists or whoever, have gone and looked and said, okay, we think you set this up well so you can reasonably claim that you've isolated this variable. And right. the results that you've produced are as a, a – whatever effects you observed, I should say, are a result of – the whatever you did or introduced or what you hypothesized yeah. right and so yeah, you so can say every, you isolated all these things and you only fed them lucky charms and they did get fat or whatever fatter than the rats that ate regular rat food and whatever right and so therefore so lucky charms not great for rats right exactly something like that so that's kind yeah. of the super cliff notes version and i say that because i you know depending on what you do for a living or what you did for school like it's been a long time since you've heard of this and i think it's important to know at least a little bit about it and we'll talk about some specific details that where studies can be misleading. But when you read about something in a news article or if you read about the specific study, there are things that you can look at that make you think, well, how impactful is this information? Sure, right? sure. But that's the kind of overview of what we're trying to do in an experimental methodology. Like the right. super basic And version. you bring up an important word there, though, methodology. Because I, I took a whole class on uh, – as a part of my – PhD work called methods and methodologies mm -hmm. and that was for the humanities right an entire class dedicated to this in the humanities and our methods and methodologies are like the laughing stock of the academic community because we do things like you know what I went and I observed some people and then I did shrooms and this is <laughs> the color that I saw so these people have this aura right we have ter but it's literally a whole class on methods and methodologies and if you are looking at an academic paper which a side plug here for Google Scholar Google Scholar, even if you don't have access to uh, a database through a university, um, Google Scholar has a lot of articles. And if you have a library card as well, your local library does have access to those yeah. databases. And you know, a lot of so, those you can get online or like download temporarily yes. as a PDF now, which is really cool. Right. If you right. want to so read you it. Can get a, yeah, you can get access there. Mm -hmm. um, but all of those papers are going to have a methods section um, that covers their method which is the process they went through and their methodology, which is the philosophy that motivated them to choose this pro process, right? Right. So if they if they used a linear progression model, they will explain why they selected a linear progression model as opposed to something else. Yeah. Or linear regression, rather. Sorry. Yeah. It's been a minute. I'll also say, if, if you're going to read this kind of stuff, and there's a reason we'll talk in a minute why sometimes it's better to go to the original source than read, you know, the Newsweek article or BuzzFeed or whatever it is that you found. <laughs> right, um, a lot of right. times they will explain in plainer for an academic article language 
um, because most of us are not experts in every single field out there. So while I might be able to read right. a psychological study with a certain degree of understanding of what's going on, I wouldn't be able to read anything about chemistry, right, or nutrition, right. and no, really it's understand. That's com- completely open. Right, I would yeah. have to basically go to the end of the article and let w- watch them summarize their findings in somewhat normal people speak to kind of get what's right. going on. Or, or check the abstract or something like right. that, yeah. But the, the thing that's, I think, positive in doing that is you get an insight into what you just talked about, the methodology. How many people were in this study? Why did we choose what this chooses? And a lot of times they will summarize their findings, whether they think it's significant or not, and say, this is why we think our results mean X. And right. that's where it can kind of get helpful, and that's where you usually see the headlines ripped from, right, is new study yes. says that, you know, X means Y. And sometimes when you go and read the study, it's not it's <laughs> as way more nuanced that. than that. Right, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, um, it, it does. Headlines do get ripped a lot. The most recent example of this that I can think of is a couple of years ago, um, the World Health Organization, which you want to talk about somebody who's got really clear methods and methodologies, right. um, released an advisory saying that weekly consumption of red meat increases your likelihood of getting cancer, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, this got all sorts of backlash and people were upset and because red meat is awesome (laughs) but yeah it's delicious right and people were saying that you're only saying this because you want to protect the environment you're getting pressure from environmentalist groups and their motives were called into question all they said in their study was that over like a 30-year period frequent consumption of red meat versus infrequent consumption there was roughly a three percent difference in rates of cancer and that it is attributable uh, in some degree, right? That's all they said, not even wholly or entirely, but it is in some degree attributable to the consumption of red meat. And if you will reduce the total amount of red meat in your diet weekly, then you can very slightly modify your chances of getting cancer. Right. And so that was what they said in the study. By the time it hit the headlines, it was cows cause cancer. Like looking at a cow, you'll get cancer. You know, yeah. it was blown way out of proportion because nobody wants to go in and read a 40-page study to find out that the result is a 3% difference over 30 years. Yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> well, that's yeah, that's terrible. not generating any clicks, right? No, no. So, so, but yeah, but meat causes cancer is generating a lot of clicks. Right. So. The motivation of the people who are reporting on these things, I think, is important. Like, you know, the guy at BuzzFeed who's writing this article is not writing it because he's like, oh, my goodness, the public needs to know about this, right? It's it's about generating traffic. And right. in, in the kind of, you know, click economy that exists online, if you're doing research online, yeah, you it's, it's basically motivating people who are writing to be as extreme as they can or to be as inflammatory as right. they can. That's what's been incentivized. So you have to take everything with a grain of salt, right? right? And I think a good measure of how good a study is is how or how good a source is is how much do you actually want to read this? And if the answer is zero, then it's probably pretty good. <laughs> that's the- if you're like, wow, this is so interesting, that probably sucks. Yeah, and I think that's a good kind of launching point to another thing I wanted to mention, just considering the source in general, and it's not that general news sources aren't helpful. You're going to see a lot of those, and you're going to find your headlines that way, unless you're the kind of person that just has nature delivered to your door, right? Um, Or the American (laughs) Journal on Pediatric Medicine or something like that, and you look through and see what's up. uh, And you know, no one does that unless you are a clinician or researcher, and even then, they have people whose job it is to um, make them known of big developments. But it's sure. you do need to consider the source one for the motivation of what they're telling you, but also, you know, there are good sources out there for scientific news or behavioral news. Um, and right. so while understanding that, you know, a bigger sample size in a study is better because, you know, if we're saying there's a pattern, if we looked at a thousand people versus 10 people that, you know, tells us a little bit more about how likely this is to be true or, you know, did they do a, double blind study or was it just a case study on 10 people or did they actually set something up like you said did we just observe a handful or did we actually set up an experiment all those are important but also not all of us have time or the expertise or even the inclination to read that kind of thing but you can still find especially for lay people and i find this very helpful to look for certain sources that are not your typical either cable news or regular news outlets when it comes to this kind of stuff. Again, you can find out about something nice because BuzzFeed is going to do a really good job of getting you interested in it. 
But sure. when you're reading something like this, I think it's important to remember, am I reading an article from Newsweek or from, you know, The Bump or something or whatever that website, is, you know, right, or whatever? Or am yeah. I reading it yeah. from, not that, you know, maybe they're trying their best, or is it from the Mayo Clinic, right? Or the website right. for the American right. Association of Pediatrics or something like that. Or, yeah. you know, the American Medical Association or something like like. That's a lot better. And yeah. they report on their findings to make recommendations, yeah. right? They don't expect you to go read those studies. The bump actually really pissed me off last night um, <laughs> because I I was looking for something. I can't remember what it was, but uh, it was like where if I, I saw it scrolling past it, there was a headline that was like, if your baby implants on the right side of the uterus, that's what makes it a boy was essentially the claim. And I was like, no, that's that's totally wrong. That's it, it has nothing to do with the side of the uterus that that the baby implants on. It may be that male fetuses are more likely to implant on the right side, but their location of implantation does not control gender. Yes. Right? This is like some 1600s kind of knowledge about babies <laughs> that's being reported online by this website that's like massive and huge, and they've totally mixed the causal relationship up. And so I, I, I saw that, and I thought it was funny because we were going to talk about this, you know, today. Yeah. And so this is last night, and I was looking at it going, there's so much misinformation out there, and the breadth of knowledge that you have to have to be able to filter out stuff that's not true is so vast that you're going to be fooled by something unless you can say, like, okay, I'm just going to say I don't know, right? I don't know. Right. And that's my my default standpoint, which is not a terrible standpoint, I don't think, even though it is a bit disconcerting. Yeah, and and that's why it's. I, I think it was part of our motivation for doing this. Again, not that we are experts in any of this specific knowledge i you know i have no idea about the science of the gestation of a human baby right? right i don't know anything about that but i know enough about how to read that kind of thing that i could look at a claim like that and know that's probably not true but i think again why considering your source is so important because that does a lot of the legwork yes. for you because there is no one i mean yeah they're fact checking at cnn for this kind of stuff sort of and they have science and you know they employ doctors and those people might report on something scientific although again i would be a little suspicious of someone who works for any kind of cable news, even if they have a degree in every realm right. of science there is. Um, but yeah, something like the Mayo Clinic that's like, we're, I mean, yeah, they sell books and stuff, but like we're not in the business of making money. It might fund what we do, but we're like a research institution, you know, grants and donations and things like this. Like we, sure. we are sure. incentivized to do good science and come up with knowledge that is useful to people not to just get someone to read our thing regardless of whether it's true or not or and it sounds like <laughs> I realize it sounds like I'm complaining about the fake news media um a lot and it's not so much that I think it's always malicious in intent I think a lot of times it comes from hey this is what it kind of looks like and I'm not an expert in this so here's my very brief summary um of this article and I think it pays if something's concerning right. you to do a little bit more digging um you know, if you're not worried about it or yeah. if you think you've got a good grasp, it, I'm not advocating spend all, every waking moment digging through the depths of the internet to find every single thing that might be good or bad for your child because, you know, you have to actually raise them. Right. You can't, <laughs> right? You can't, you don't have the time of the day for that. No one does. But if you hear something that concerns you, right? Like if I hear, or, you know, all the time, if Zach, whatever new disease he gets, and I, he's our first, so I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> They're all new. You know, I mean, I, I ask people I know in my real life, first of all, who have raised a child and like, hey, your kid had hand, foot, and mouth. What did you do? Right? Um, please right, please calm right. me down a little bit because I feel like it's my fault and also what am I going to do? But yeah, something like the Mayo Clinic or um, a actual like, I mean, WebMD has a kind of a reputation, right, of telling everybody that everything, it's yeah, cancer. it must be cancer. It's That's not 100% true. They list... it. There's, again, too much information, you know, every, well, you know, some people who have cancer also have this, so we better list everything, but sources like that, I think, are helpful when you're looking for something specific, because you know, okay, these people aren't trying to, they aren't confused or misled themselves by what they're, what they're printing. They've spent a long time learning about this. Right, you mentioned the implanting and how, you know, it might be, maybe boys just happen to go to that side, not that side makes them boys. Right, Um, right. I think that's a... A good point to talk about correlation versus causation. This might be the most important takeaway yeah. from the whole thing, um, because man, does this get butchered in social media <laughs> all of the time, right? Right. Well, you started a minute ago talking about um, a hypothesis within the the scientific community, yeah. and I, I want to talk a little bit about where a hypothesis okay, comes sure. from. Okay, um, sure. So this idea and this 
ties directly into correlation mm-hmm. and causation. So let's say you have like something that happens to you, right? Uh, and that becomes a piece of evidence. This is anecdotal, right? It's like I walked my dog and then I slept better that night. Okay. So this one time event I'm going to assume means that if I walk my dog, I sleep better. That's at this point anecdotal. Mm-hmm. It's not evidence. Yeah, there's no pattern it's not there. Scientific. No. There's no pattern, right? And then I do it again and I notice that, okay, well, I actually slept better that night. Okay. And I do it again. And I, I develop this habit of walking my dog at night on this long walk and I notice that I sleep better. And then somebody says to me, man, I'm having trouble sleeping. And I say, do you have a dog? And they say, I do have a dog. And I say, take your dog on a long walk right before you go to bed and you'll sleep better. And they report back and they say, man, that worked. And then this becomes kind of folk wisdom then, lore essentially, Mm -hmm. that we begin to pass amongst each other. This is not an experiment and it's not data and it's not evidence. It's a collection of anecdotes that is grounds for an experiment. Right. Right. So that's where kind of that hypothesis comes from. What passes for evidence and proof and belief in general society for everybody myself included Mm -hmm. tends to be the very foundation for a study that that's all that's enough is just to ask the question and then you go and you do this whole study about it right yeah so that that's one of the reasons why when you're looking at these scientific papers it's so in-depth and so complicated because they're doing a lot of really complicated work because the standards are so much higher and one of the things that they look for is this idea of correlation or causation. Causation meaning this thing caused that thing. Right. You know, I knocked this domino over and it hit the next domino and knocked yes. it over. That's a causal relationship. Mm-hmm. Or correlation, which is, you know, uh, um, Kim Jong-un sneezed and then this domino fell over, right? Well, he's a long way away and it's because you hit this other domino. Those events correlate, but they're not causally. Right, linked. exactly. Statistically, a correlation is two things that have a mathematical relationship in how they change. So, you know, if we take two factors and we watch them and we see this, as this factor rises, I can plug into a formula and say, if I increase X by 10%, that means I know Y will go down by 5% or something. And, you know, and, and you can literally, right. and you'll see it if you look up a study, right? You'll see graphs of things like that. That's typically, um, you know, that's what we're talking about with the correlation. There's a mathematical relationship that holds up with between these two factors, however, I manipulate um, my data. So if you go back to your, you know, sixth grade math, you know, y equals mx plus b or something. That's not exactly the the formula for a core, you know, a line for that. But it's that kind of thing right. where I can plug in variables into this formula and they will affect each other. So if I increase, like I said, if I increase y or decrease it or increase x or decrease it, I can then predict what will happen to the other variable in this scenario or multiple variables variables sometimes right and typically these are reported not again in a normal news article but how strong it is um you'll get a measure and so there are even weak correlations right there's some stuff that barely seems to be related and things that seem very very strong and that's i think where the confusion comes in because if we see something that has a super strong correlation such as um your the the education level of your parents and your future earnings. We can predict pretty well, right? right? How much money you're going to make as as an adult based on what your parents make. Um, And that's not necessarily a one-to-one causal, like domino type relation, right? Because obviously there's multiple things that go into what, how much money someone makes. You know, my parents can both be PhDs, but if my passion is bongo drums, you know, unless I revolutionize uh, music as a genre, you know, if I play bongos in the Which subway, the bongos not your best. Yeah, bet, right? right. If I play bongos in the subway, just because they were educated, you know, and and a correlation doesn't mean sure. it will always happen, right? A causal relationship means one hundred percent of the time, this will happen, right? If you do that, if you jump, you and, will and fall because, to the ground because of <laughs> yes, this. Yes, exactly. Right? Um, and and causal relationships are complicated too because if it, it, within your example, if you think about what causes parents who are educated and wealthy to have children who end up being educated and wealthy. It's not like they inherit the degree, right? right? And it's not that the parents maybe use more big words at home. Again, unrelated. Mm -hmm. There's so many different things from how much time your parents are going to have to be able to take vacation time to spend time with you or the, you know, 
if you whereas if you have uh if you're in a single parent household and your parent juggles three jobs they can't spend as much time with you right so that's going to be related um there's also stress from being poor that both children and parents experience that has a net negative impact on iq right that can be ameliorated if you then go into a you know less stressful wealthier environment um so there's there's a, a, a hundred different factors, maybe more, probably more, that are related to yes. your parents being wealthier and having better education. And the result of the the combined result of all of those things is we can predict that your children are going to be more or less wealthy based on this. Right. G- generally, sometimes, right? Most of the time, in fact. But it's it's so complicated to control for. It's not just like, well, if you give these people more money, their children are going to be richer then. That's not... It's it's really hard. It's yeah, really exactly. And so when you're looking at correlations and and making causal assumptions, that's that's really dangerous because you have to think of all these different factors. It's hard to do. Yeah, this. And, and this is what we see reported all of the time, right? And and the reason you see so many more co- correlations is exactly what you're talking about is because it's way easier to show correlation than it is to show causation. So. What, you know, one, your paper is more likely to get published because you have some positive results to show. But also, um, something, some things are impossible to cause causal relationships. And so maybe if as a field, right, right we unpack dozens of correlational uh, phenomena and say, well, all of these seem to be kind of similar. So education level of your parents, right? How much they earn, um, like you said, how much free time, which is related to how much money they earn, Right. Um, right. All these different things. It's like if all of these factors are high, we can predict that. Then it seems to say generally, you know, people of a higher socioeconomic status, their kids tend to stay that way or not fall down. Right. right. And, and and then you can look at other factors. And, and so that's what people are going after. And in the scientific community, it's tend to understood that tend to be understood that you're not pulling one factor out of hundreds and saying this is the one we're all contributing to the right. general body of knowledge right as as researchers i say we as if i'm a researcher i'm not i meant you know the <laughs> the royal we or something like that right you might be yeah. studied though That's so so the scientific community isn't trying you know everybody's not trying to necessarily hit on the one theory that's going to revel i mean maybe they are but it's we're contributing in our own way to this overall body of knowledge. So then maybe someone else comes along and looks at it as a whole and says, here's a, a trend among trends, right, that we can find. And so when you see an article on the Internet that says something like children who, you know, watch more than two hours of TV a week before the age of five are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. It's not that it's untrue because there's a correlational relationship that's been that's sure. been studied and sure proven right quote unquote but it also doesn't mean every kid that that happens to that's they will get adhd or that's the only thing that can affect whether or not your child is diagnosed with adhd um, especially stuff like that that's right. the one i think gives me a little bit pause and i hear from my friends that worries them a little bit more is some things like my child will get this late because labels are big and scary um that kind of thing yeah, and yeah. i'm worrying about that and one, there's so many factors that go into whether or not you're diagnosed with something. Like there are <laughs> historical trends. Like it sounds bad to say, but like diagnoses become in vo- like become vogue, right? So, 20 right, years ago, every behavioral yeah. problem or every difficulty a child had in school was because of ADHD. Now it's you're at least somewhat on the autism spectrum, right? And right. so it's kind of hard to take it seriously a little bit for me when I see something of that, because I know the process. I mean, that's what I did for a living was work in special education, right. And assess children for things like that. So sure. sure. I I find that spurious, but at the same time, there's useful information there, right? If you see multiple things that it tends to be like, if my children are overstimulated and don't spend enough time and don't learn how to regulate their emotions and have everything given to them instantly, maybe their behavior overall will be more impulsive and more prone to distraction. That's what you might. Right. And so that's an example of like, yes, these correlations can be useful, but what you're going to see it reported in the study is they're more likely to do this. Well, I mean, if you love your children, you see something like that and your at least initial impulse is probably to say, no more. TV yeah. How do I, you. how do I stop that from happening? Do, and, and you might not have sure. as much control over it as that implies. And so I, th- I think that's my point is not that you don't have you. Yes. You're not concerned about these correlations. You are, but you know, that might motivate you to investigate it a little bit more. And it makes sense that you would want to do that, but you can't just take that at face value all of the time. Um, 
What's the name? Right. I think it's uh, it's a it's a dangerous thing to think that you can look at your child's like the activities your child does or the foods that they eat or the things they consume or the vaccines they do or don't right. don't get and move them up and down like sliders and if you find the correct configuration your child will have a suffering free disease free you know yes. uh, um, mental disorder free life and that's just not the case because it's entirely possible that you do everything right and everything goes terribly right which wrong. is and it's scary to relinquish <laughs> a control, massive existential right? problem right that we can't control everything it's, yeah uh, what's the name of the website where yeah, correlations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have it? Uh, up, I don't. I can do it real quick. It, it's it's kind of hilarious, but this illustrates. You showed it, this to me. It, it illustrates the point so well. Um, yeah. Uh, let me see if I can. So basically, what the website is is this guy uh, Tyler Vision um, has charted correlations that are spurious hence the name right it's they don't actually there's no there's no causal relationship between these things it's just that they happen to correlate over a long period mm-hmm. of time right um like uh here's here's a good one it's got a correlation of 89.99 percent it's per capita consumption of chicken and total u.s crude oil imports so it's not like when people start eating chicken they're like import yeah, oil right right <laughs> It's just that these things from a period from an over a nine year period from 2000 to 2009 happen to have gone together, which I find hilarious. And there's a bunch of stuff like that. Do you have a favorite? Okay, one I'm on looking. Here? So this one is funny. Okay, so I've got two that I really, really like because I think that um, they this one seems like it might make sense. Uh, this is a great discussion on to use another you know bit of jargon face validity which most people do yes. this in their everyday life, but I think sometimes we turn that part of our brain off when someone with authority is telling us, you know, well, you know, Absolutely. Time Magazine couldn't Absolutely. print it if it wasn't true, which is 100% false. People mess up on purpose or on accident all the time, right? So this one right here, sure. total revenue generated by arcades, like video game arcades in the U.S., with computer yeah. science doctorates awarded. 98.51%, <laughs> which is insane <laughs> for a correlation. Like, it goes right. like 100% duh is all of it, right? It, and that kind of makes a little bit of sense, right? Because, oh, well, you know, people who like computers games, are nerds, so you like and maybe they played computers yeah. as a kid. And so, but this is in, like, real time. So, <laughs> in the year, you know, 2008 or whatever, 2009 is the last year. Uh, the, it went from 2000 to 2009 on this correlation. Like, no one earning a PhD in 2009, like, you would have to look at revenue by arcades when they were six, right? That's not what they're looking at. So, again, right. if you unpack it even a little bit, you realize... This is this is hogwash, right? This means nothing. The one that I think just makes me laugh is the one um, per capita cheese consumption correlates with the number of people who died becoming tangled in their bed sheets. Because I just imagine someone binge eating cheese, like a whole wheel of cheese, and then like going into some yeah. sort of dairy stupor and like falling into their bed. And well, I, that's why I stopped eating so much cheese before bed. <laughs> you know, I used to actually enter into cheese eating competitions before bed, and then constipation competitions the next day but i realized i could die <laughs> that one sounds um, like something out of the old testament to me you know there's ridiculous stories in the old testament of like you know and this random dude who never gets mentioned again you know was riding a goat and fell down a right. well and died right or something like that that's this kind of thing he right. ate yeah. so much cheese that the lord caused his bed sheets to come alive and, and, and strangle him and strangle him to death yes a bubble of evil right? got him and so um, but yeah that's a really good example what, of how um, it is because it's a it, it correlation is. is a statistical tool, right? And we use these scientists yes. use these models, right? These data now, and I think this is where some of the mistrust of the scientific community comes from because you can use these tools to show whatever you want, right? So you'll hear people say this, or you'll hear Rush Limbaugh yes. talk about it, like you know, well, they could just make anything say anything, and you kind of can. One, there's supposed to be industry standards, like you talked about. So if your paper is bad, right. And you should feel bad about it. They will tell you and they won't publish it, right? <laughs> um, but Right. That's why you have to publish your method and methodology, right. right? That's why, even though it's boring and everybody already knows, you have to include that to show this is how we yes, got this data. Yes, to, to above, being above board, right? The other part of this is that the reason we have, or the reason scientists have these tools and use them is because there's so much, you can't look at a big column of numbers and glean anything from it, right? It's just too much. It's right. not how our brains work. So we use these to suss out patterns. But that doesn't do the work of creating a good hypothesis and testing it measurably. Like all those things you have to do to have a good study we talked about in the scientific method, like just using data and manipulating it with a statistical analysis doesn't, is not the same thing. 
It's not a substitute for right. good methodology. So just because I can show that U.S. spending on science space and technology correlates with suicides by hanging, strangulation, and suffocation doesn't mean like right it doesn't mean that the astronaut is right yeah because i haven't you know if if that's what i try to publish i haven't like that makes no logical sense right i've put nothing into it 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 falls apart at the merest examination and critical thought and so that's why i want to talk about understand what's going on there the exam the examination Mm -hmm. part and it falling and it falling apart because i think there's a difference in mindset from parents who are looking at data that they find online or correlations they find online or claims from headlines and scientists. There's a difference in, in mindset there because, um, so take for example, this, this one right here, um, people who drowned after falling out of a fishing boat and marriage rate in Kentucky, (laughs) right? So this correlates at a 95 point, the R is 0.95, very high. Okay. In, In the statistical world, very high over an 11 year period. And so if we want this data to be true, we start hypothesizing ways it could be. Well, it could be that, you know, there's oh, a lot of people yeah, who fish yeah. in Kentucky. And if there's all these people who are fishing and then people drown when they fall out of fishing boats, it makes people reflect on their own mortality. And they, you know, they like, oh, I just want to get, you know, what? let's let's go ahead and, and jump the stick together. Right. Let's just do yes. it. You know, like I don't want to wait because I'm afraid of death. So let's go ahead and get married. And that's when you're trying to prove your data correct, which is the opposite of the yeah. scientific mindset, which is to always try and prove your hypothesis wrong. It's called mm-hmm. falsifying. You want to falsify your own data. And and that's you basically you push on everything as hard as you can to try and knock it over. And the thing you can't disprove, that's the thing that you say, this right. is truth or it, it we suspect it to be true. Right. Whereas when you're a parent and you're looking for this, you're looking for an explanation, anything that can grant you a measure mm-hmm. of control. And so you're trying to find something that's true. You're truthifying the data as opposed yes. to falsifying it. And that that difference is what leads people to do things like say, hey, I know that vaccines might save my children's lives, but I'm not going to vaccinate them because, you know what, it gives me this measure of control back. You're insulating yourself from the the fear of risk of this set of things, but because you have approached it incorrectly, you're introducing a whole other set of risks. Definitely. And I, and you know, we've talked about narratives a lot on this podcast and that is a, it's the way human brains work, right? We construct narratives and we see patterns and we try to do that because it it helps us out and is a useful. And we've talked a lot about why that's useful, but for something like this, the narrative is less useful, right? Because it leads you to some conclusions that are not necessarily backed up by data and reality, right? Whereas if we're talking about how you conceptualize something that we know to be true, right? Like we know that being a more responsible, caring, uh, proactive person, introspective person, like all these positive qualities. We know these are all positive because of maybe data or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, you know, we've observed it in our own lives or anything like that, right? We create a narrative to fit those into the, as a guidepost and a summarization and they, and they help us then follow that narrative, right? But if, like you say, if we create a narrative on something, we're we're fishing for something to be true. So we're going to create a story that sounds good. Like we're so good at that. You can create a story that sounds good. Like you said, for anything. Um, and it, I, I feel like I do this the opposite way where I see something like that and it's like I don't do that thing and I want some control, you know, and so I, I try to I create a narrative where it sure. makes more sense for me not to do that type of thing as a parent because and so I'm, I'm doing the same thing, but not yes. to follow what someone else has told me, but to keep doing what I'm already doing um, a lot of times. Right. And, I, right. and so I think in the realm of I'm trying to digest knowledge that is relevant to my family and my children, um, and especially if you're someone mom or dad, but we're dads, but if you're someone who reads a lot of things like that, anyone, you know, and you like to, you find that interesting and fascinating, I think it's, you can, one, get inundated very easily, but also you can start feeling a little worried that there's so much stuff out there and it's all reported as immensely critical to you. And if you don't take a little bit of time to pick it apart and research it a little bit, um, you can really... Uh, yeah, just paralyze yourself. I think, or feel, you or can. feel incredibly you, you guilty. Beca- with that's the thing that happens fear. to me. I and don't know guilt, about yeah. you. Um, that feels, it makes me feel guilty when I'm like, oh, why didn't I know about this? Or oh my god, I let my kid do this, and now it's terrible. You know, it's. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I don't. Since my child has not arrived yet, I haven't experienced the child guilt. Um, although I'm sure I will experience it intensely because guilt is my favorite, <laughs> you know, outfit to wear. I just feel guilty about everything all the time. And the worse I feel, I think the more I allow myself to do bad things. It's like, wow, I'll feel really mm-hmm. bad about that. Uh, and so that makes up for it. But for me, the the area it's it's most prevalent is every time I read about some kind of like new pedagogical revelation in the field of teaching English. Um, I think back to my past students and there's thousands of them. It's like, look at all these kids who I didn't help because oh, I did the right. wrong thing, right? A study, a study says this thing that you were doing is dumb and won't help them. It's like, great. Uh, okay, that's <laughs> that's good because I can't, un- I can't unring that bell. And because my contact with my students is so singular, mm-hmm. um, I tend to take on a role in my own mind that is far larger than the actual role I yes. play. Um, and so I, I take responsibility for their futures internally, which is inaccurate and arrogant, but just natural, right? Cause I tell myself a story about mm-hmm. the job that I do. And if, if my answer is, well, my job is meaningless and it doesn't change very much one, I'm not going to do it very well. And two, I'm going to be extremely depressed. Right. And so you inflate your own importance. And this is something that you see every, every time you go to like a convention or, an award ceremony for whatever job it is. It's like teachers are the most important teachers save lives. Or if it's for, you know, um, uh, lawyers, it's the noblest profession who can maintains the sanity. Or if it's for doctors, it's the ones who save, right. you know, we are the, the you know, it, whatever it is, you know, you can always find people in that institution saying it's the thing that is the most important. And, that's a nice narrative, right? It is a nice narrative. But if you assume that as a parent, especially, that you are the only one who's in control of your child's future, first of all, you're dehumanizing or taking agency away from your child. Your child's a human being and they have to make some choices for themselves. And two, it's kind of arrogant to assume that you have that degree of control. So you feel this guilt like, oh no, I've, I've messed up my child. But the truth is that some things are just beyond your control. Not to say you shouldn't try to be a good parent, right? Obviously, but some things are just you know. Y- yeah, you and can't I do, I do think it's it. an important responsibility of parents to be aware of this kind of stuff and to you know for whether you whatever happens in your life adjust behavior as needed, even if it's nothing, yes, even yes. if it's as simple as your own example, right? If I'm a, if I notice walking my dog makes me sleep better, I'm going to be a better parent. I didn't have to read that in a study to know if it's working for me, then that's, that can be pretty good. And, and so, right. Look at this data, do a little bit of extra digging, you know, and try to understand it a little bit better and incorporate it if necessary or good in your life, or if it's something you want to do, but also pay attention to what's going on right in front of you (laughs) and how your child reacts to things. Because I like, again, talking about rationalizing or truthifying things, as you're saying, I mean, you can read this and I, I've done this. Well, I'll read something like that and I'll look at what Zag does. I'm like, oh my gosh, is that, a, is that a sign of future whatever? And sometimes you do it right. Like, <laughs> man, he's really good at throwing his toys when he's mad. Does that mean he's going to be a, a pitcher in the MLB someday? Look how good he is at it, right? Like you can do it in a fun way right? too. Oh my goodness. He's going to be the first yeah, switch right. pitcher. <laughs> something you know? like that. He's going to be a mountain climber because of how fast he can get into his high chair when he's ready to eat. Um. (laughs) (laughs) All you have to do is put the high chair on top of whatever mountain. Tell him there's going to be a waffle at the top of Mount Everest and he'll be up there in a flash. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So, and I want to harken back to, we talked a lot about narratives and about positive masculinity. And I think one thing I remember us talking a big part of that is to kind of, take things as they come with not necessarily stoicism, but a willingness to do what needs to be done and a resiliency. Yeah. Right. That's, that's something that we're, yeah, there's a certain kind of masculine resiliency. And that is, I think so important in this because you are flooded with so much of this stuff and you can't ignore it. Ignoring it is bad or explaining it away or saying, I wish the world was a different way. So I'm going to yell and scream and mistreat people to try to impose, um, my version of this on the world that doesn't take into account anything else other than what I want, as opposed to taking in information, examining your own behavior and saying, what can I control? Are there things I'm doing? I should be doing differently or better. And now I I will try to impose that on the world. It's not that you shouldn't try to control things for your child. Or I mean, that's essential, right? (laughs) Yes. It's your job as a parent. 
you can't drive yourself mad trying to control everything. And I think for me anyways, I have to examine, am I worried about this because I think people are going to look at me and judge me? Or am I worried about this because I think this is a real area where I could do better by my son? Um, and I think everyone has to decide that for themselves to a certain extent. I don't think anyone else can tell you. And uh-huh. I would be suspect yeah. of anyone who was trying to tell me what the single most important thing I should be paying attention to, mostly because they're not me and they don't know my child, right? Um, and and, right. and, and, and right. we are all individuals and we've talked about that a lot. And so I think as much as, for me, the thing is freeing when I remember to just pay attention to my child and, you know, do yes. I, is it, yes. you know, is he living by the values that I want him or am I imparting those, right? Is he doing the things that right. I, you know, I've set up this criteria for what's good and what's um, wholesome and what do I introducing yeah, that, into his life um, and not worrying too much about whether or not he's, you know, got the right kind of, you know, shoes or clothes or is his daycare academically right. and the right to rigorous enough. Yeah, exactly. That kind of stuff. Is he listening right, to enough because Speaking of correlations, right? Like, Playing with your child and talking with them are strongly correlated with all kinds of positive outcomes. So if you do just that, um, you're probably okay. Yes, I, yeah, I think there's a uh, an issue here of what are you, the the question to me seems to be, what do you do with all this data? Mm-hmm. Because there's so much that you can justify almost any set yeah. of behaviors. And so a good place to begin with is essentially a narrative about the kind of parent yes. you want to be. So you can you can begin with this narrative of I want to be patient, I want to be firm. Sure. This is me personally, right? I, I want to have a, a set of rules that are consistent. I want my punishments to appear unmotivated by anger, and I know I'm going to fail at that. But I don't want it to seem like I'm I'm punishing my child because I'm angry at them. I want it to be like my my child is getting punished because they broke this rule, and that's what mm-hmm. happens when you break this rule. It's not me getting vengeance for them, right? or getting vengeance on them. It's just the way that it is. I want to be involved and playing and engaging with my child as much as possible. Um, you know, I, I want to be, I want to have a house that my, my son feels comfortable bringing his friends to, but not because they can get away with, you know, drinking and boozing and carousing. <laughs> right. Um, and so there's a, a, there's a set of things that are qualities that I want to have mm-hmm. as a dad. And, that's that comes from the way my parents are and it comes from some you know socially and some from me and some from you know the discussions that jess and i have had but that's a kind of fixed thing of like these are my values and what i think is important and so that becomes a lens through which i can filter all of this data right um and so it's it simplifies that data down to a point where it's like okay you know what i don't really understand this thing about you know this way of playing with your child that they say will make them go to an Ivy League school. But you know what I do understand? That I mm-hmm. like playing with my child. And so I might try this, but I'm not going to say that's the most important thing. Or I'm not going to remove all the fun from playing with my child to try and force it into this right. box. Instead, I'm going to stick to this core set of values. And I think if you ask people about those core set of values, most parents are going to be able to articulate them. And I think that most parents are going to articulate a pretty reasonable yeah. set. You know, if you ask people what what kind of parent do you want to be or what are the things you want to do, they're going to have a pretty good answer. And they may not be able to do it for, you know, external reasons like I have to work three jobs or, you know, uh, um, yes. I'm sick or, you know, there's any, any number of reasons they couldn't. But if you can, if you have the option and the availability, I think most parents have a narrative they can tell themselves about what a good parent is that they can try to live towards. And that's a lot simpler and I think a lot more effective than let me distill millions of articles into a key set of sure, you know, absolutely. parenting tactics. It well, doesn't work like, that like we way. said, the usefulness of narratives is then to give you something to judge your behavior and what you encounter in the world by. And so if right. something makes you right. question that, then that's great. Dig a little bit more. Um, so, you know, don't be, I, I, and you're not saying to be set in your ways, but yeah, I, I think being armed with a clear vision and motivation of what you want to do as a parent, as a person, as a man, as a father, dad, whatever, right? That lets you take in both stuff you read and then just what you experience, right? And, and, and I think that's kind of, other right. than the specific tools and tips we've talked about, that's I, my big takeaway from reading and looking at this kind of stuff is, is you can overanalyze yourself to death. Um, 
But if you have a clear path <laughs> yeah. that you're trying to walk, then now you're saying, okay, I'm looking for tools to help me on this path, right? Um, right. That's because right. I don't have anything else. I'm So I don't know if there's some uh, another point or anything you wanted to make, but... No, I think I think we should wrap it up. There's a, there's some other stuff in the notes that we can get to, you know, and, yeah. in future episodes. But um, I have to go to brunch, which, you know, as something that, as a parent, one of my values is that I don't want my son to be overly enamored <laughs> with brunch. It's just a, it is. a frivolous it's, meal. It's definitely um, a first world meal, right? <laughs> it it is yes. Although I will say that if if Jess has any say in it, we'll all be brunching <laughs> constantly. Um, Although she she did show me something that Heather McMahon, yeah. I don't know if you remember her from high school, posted the other day uh, that was a picture of a menu in some restaurant that said for women who eat, not ladies who lunch. And that she is, liked that a whole lot. That's pretty and, funny. You no, know, I do too. Um, so yeah, you go, go eat brunch. Eat I'm going to go better way to load my family brunching. up in the car and drive eat to Austin early. for, it'll be three weekends in a row. Okay. I know everyone in the world is so interested about this, but that, that if you don't have kids and you're listening to this and you wonder what it's like, you always have somewhere to go all of the time. And my kid can't even play sports or go to school yet, so I'm dreading what's going to happen there, how little control I have over my life in the future. <laughs> Although it's all good things. I love Austin and there's good people there. But we, by the way, before we leave, do what is a really strong correlation is how good of a parent are you are with how much you have shared our podcast with your friends and family and coworkers and acquaintances. Uh, yeah. So two dads named Grant. I think the is R the is name like of the show. You can find us on Twitter at TDNGcast, and that is such an efficient way to share positive things like this podcast, and also to get socially outraged about things you know very little about. But why not spread some positivity, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. a podcast where. We talk about the scientific method again. Everyone's favorite topic, but this has to be the most interesting episode that we've done, yeah. and the most interesting podcast anyone's ever listened to. Clearly, that, that's right. This um, is not we have dry, academic, boring things. I don't think it. I, I don't think it is. We'll get. We'll, we'll get more. We'll get. We'll have a juicier topic. You're, you're a um, bad judge because you under this you are <laughs> interested by the most boring things. That this is true. So, this has been two dads named Grant. I'm Grant Overman, and I'm Grant Vickery. Hey, thanks, everybody, and we'll see you next time.